WBZ original. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Studio BZ. I forgot to Oh, yeah, me too. Do we need okay. Oh, okay. Okay, when you're ready. Here we go in three, two, one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a star-spangled edition, <laughs> July 4th style, of Studio BZ. I'm John Keller, and alongside... I'm Paula Eben, and thanks for joining us. Happy 4th, Paula, to Happy you and 4th. yours. Can you believe we have reached the end of June already into July? I am ready. Unbelievable. Here is what we're talking about this week. The Boston School Superintendent, Tommy Chang, out. We'll talk about why. And smartphones are changing our society. What they're doing to our kids' brains is a matter of intense speculation. We'll talk with an expert from Children's Hospital about what's going on and what parents can do about it. And stay off the road this weekend. It will be bad, according to Mary McGuire of AAA. Uh, she'll have the newest things that will kill you if you drive. And I don't even know what this last item is about, uh -huh. but knowing our producer, Jonathan Case, <laughs> it's going to be good. The weirdest Boston listicle ever. Listicle has to be one of my favorite new words. Is that anything like the creamsicle, <laughs> you know, that, that melts right down your arm creamsicle. on a hot day? No? Sometimes I've had enough of a listicle. I'm looking forward to that. So let's talk about what happened with the Boston School Superintendent last week. Tommy Chang has announced that he will be leaving his post, John, at the end of July. He was here. I remember he came here with Mayor Walsh three years ago and came in for an interview with all kinds of excitement because he had run one of many large school districts in Los Angeles uh, before coming here. And so he was seen as someone who had really been in a big city situation. Dealing with a really diverse population yeah. economically and ethnically. What happened? Well, you know, the, first of all, the job of being a big city school superintendent mm. might well be one of the toughest. I don't want to say worst, but one of the toughest jobs in American it politics. Is. Given all the different constituencies you have mm -hmm. to deal with. And parents. And uh, not to mention parents. And the word I got from talking to people inside and outside of City Hall was that Superintendent Chang was a nice guy, a very intelligent guy, a very well-meaning guy, but a guy with basically no idea of how to navigate the complex political shoals of Boston and, and the Boston public schools. So and perhaps a good educator, but not the best manager for something on this scale. And certainly Boston is not an easy city to come into if you're an outsider. And, and you have to have both of those things. And uh, the most telling thing was uh, probably uh, late last year, you may remember, I think it was in December, mm -hmm. when he announced a new starting times right. for Boston schools, later starting times, supposed to give kids a little more shut-eye in the morning. And there was an uproar of titanic proportions. And I gotta say, that, that could not have come as a surprise. I did an Ion Education story about this with the superintendent of Newton, and they were talking about the logistical nightmare of this. You've got to get whole sections of the Bay State on your side, all the people who play your sports, in order to change the times. And so for this to be done kind of quickly did seem to me, kind of surprising. And to get back to your initial question, why did he get canned? Yeah. Oh, excuse me, they had a, sure. mutual, a mutual parting of the parting ways. parting of the ways. Yeah, he got canned. The reason is 
that particular debacle, mm, the mm-hmm. school starting times, uh, that blindsided Mayor Walsh. Yeah, he you don't heard do that. about it from a reporter's phone call initially. You never do that. That is at page A1 in the manual of how to s- survive, certainly here in Boston, mm-hmm. uh, which is you keep the mayor always in the loop. No surprises. And that was not the first time that had happened. And how about the deportation issues? Well, that's the most recent thing. I don't think that had that much to do with the mm-hmm. final decision. I think, if you will, the the die was cast before that. But yeah, here's Marty Walsh making a big national name for himself as a staunch defender of immigrants, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who has talked about, you know, uh, how we have to apply the principles of sanctuary. He, uh, you may remember, famously offered up City Hall as a sanctuary for people, uh, undocumented or illegal immigrants who wanted to escape uh, uh, the clutches of ICE. And here he has to pick up the paper and read that the Boston School Department's been cooperating with ICE in at least one case of the deportation of a uh, Boston public school student. Just not how you want that kind of thing to roll out. And again, I I did a story last year on the DACA kids and how the schools were trying to help them. And so that's the kind of thing to be contradicting your superior that way and not communicating effectively with either the mayor or parents clearly on the start times issue. Those were just, uh, you know, just examples. So, you know, obviously uh, people, everybody with a stake in the Mm -hmm. Boston Public Schools wants to know what happens next. The city is poised to pump a lot of new money into the system. There's this massive school building program. Mm -hmm. uh, Which is necessary. It's about to get launched long overdue. Uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, Perhaps this is a case of a young mayor seeing a shiny object Again, all due respect to Superintendent Chang Mm -hmm. and lunging for it and now learning his lesson. Uh, And it wouldn't surprise me at all, Paula, you know more about this than I do because this is your beat. Wouldn't surprise me at all to see someone in-house. I think so. And I think there was a lot of allure when Tommy Chang uh, came about talking about reinventing what the classroom of the future will look like in terms of technology. I think we got to get the building situation in order. And and how about getting books in the hands of the kids too? I remember one year uh, Madison Park's schedule wasn't even finalized before the school year crazy stuff you just can't have the basics go by the boards like that so we will look to see by the end of the summer who the new well there'll be an interim superintendent obviously and then a new boston public school superintendent on the way sooner rather than later i bet this is greater boston cradle of american democracy Okay, so school vacation is here, and uh, for a lot of kids and families, that means kids are going off to camp, getting involved in sports programs. For a lot of kids, though, it means just flat-out downtime. Nothing wrong with that unless a summer of downtime means a summer of laying on your bed with the smartphone in front of your face, uh, doing nothing but texting and chatting and Instagramming. Uh, what is going on with the so-called iGen, the iPhone generation, that appears to be well down the road toward addiction to these devices and what they're bringing into the home? Well, we had an opportunity to talk with a guy. I know you're, you're familiar with him, Paula. Michael Rich, the founder and director of the Center on Media and Child Health in Boston. He's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and that center is over at Children's Hospital. He's been studying the impact of mass media on kids for a long time. And he has 
some very interesting things to say about uh, how smartphone technology may be affecting your teenager or child. And as just adults or parents, it's alarming to think we have no concept of what it's doing to their actual brains at this point. So it'll be interesting to hear what Dr. Rich has to say. Here's Dr. Rich. So here we go, Michael. School is out. All of a sudden, many kids have all sorts of free time. And uh, there are experts in the field who have suggested, I'm thinking of Jean Twenge and her recent book uh, about what she calls iGen. She suggested that way too many kids, teenagers, even younger kids, are going to spend these summer months uh, not out enjoying the weather, being with friends, experiencing new things, but flat on their back, on their bed, with the phone held out in front of them, getting lost in the world of the smartphone. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, I am not a um, the sky is falling kind of person. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen to all kids, um, nor should we, you know, sort of uh, batten down the hatches and prepare for it to happen with our kids. But we need to be aware of the fact that the smartphones are very seductive and very easy to fall into um, as a default behavior. Um, This is a behavior actually that started back in the days of television where some kids would flip on the screen and just watch it for hours or just have it running while they um, did whatever they did. And we have transposed that to the smartphone, um, which is brilliantly designed to uh, hook us in and keep us hooked in. So uh, what's a parent or even the kid themselves to do about this? Just say no? Uh, well, no. I, I, I don't think taking a Luddite approach to it is uh, is going to be either successful or ultimately useful. I, I think that what we need to do is introduce these tools as tools, even if the kid already has one, but to understand what it does well, what it does not do well, and that it's not a, a substitute for the other things they can do, particularly in the summer when they're not tied to school. Um, I think that what we owe our children as parents, as educators, um, is a rich and diverse menu of experience. And the media they use can be part of that experience, um, but it is not and cannot be all of the experience. You know, I I see it every day. I'm sure you see it. All our listeners do. A group of kids walking down the street, and they're together, but they're not together because every last one of them is on their phone, even when they're together. What's the answer to that other than taking the damn thing away? Teaching them to use it in mindful and focused ways for what it does well, and teaching them alternative behaviors, alternative activities that are much more fun, much more challenging, much harder to do. Um, But we we have to understand that these kids are still building their brains, and particularly they're building their prefrontal cortices where the executive functions such as impulse control, future thinking, cause and effect exist. And so Let's take a step back and say, well, should we have given our cell phone, a, a smartphone to a child at this age? Um, 
or should they have a flip phone? Um, the flip phone is coming back ju for just this very reason. And can we really help our children to use um, these devices in ways that enhance their lives, enhance their learning, enhance their relationships with each other? Um, because now what's happened is that we have offered them infinite connectivity, which ultimately undermines our connectedness. Now, what's problematic interactive media use? It is the use that ends up functionally impairing um, the young person from their activities that make them healthier. Many of them um, will forego meals. Many of them stay up late at night or all night um, playing these games. And it's when it impairs them, whether when it affects their academic performance or their social life, and uh, it does in very deep and profound ways for some young people. You told the Wall Street Journal recently you've seen a dramatic increase in, in this kind of dysfunction. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, parents are very, very worried about this. And in fact, um, so worried that they are changing their attitudes toward these devices and the use of these devices. And um, in many cases, it is a light -eye one of, of, of taking it away from the kids, restricting them from using it. Um, and ultimately, that doesn't work because it makes it the um, forbidden fruit. And it makes it means the child just works on workarounds and how do I get, you know, get to this rather than really understanding that there is um, a giveaway. There is a, a lot that gets displaced by their use of that device um, that really is a much richer and more rewarding experience or relationship. Michael, even though... I am remarkably young looking on TV. I do have my, my two boys are all grown up now, but uh, I, I talk all the time to parents of young children and I find that they're all struggling with the question of when to allow them access to this technology. Is there a cutoff age that you have in mind? Uh, no, because first of all, every bit of this technology is slightly different. A smartphone is different from a flip phone, is different from an iPad, is different from a, a laptop. So let's think about this as a power tool that should be introduced to the child at an age when she or he needs that tool and can use it effectively, but also can use it responsibly and introduce it in a way where you discuss right up front the positives, the negatives, and the consequences that should occur when the child oversteps, which they invariably will, but at least they have some ownership of the, the rule book and the consequences going into the experience. How much screen time for, let's say, a 15-year-old is too much? For some 15-year-olds, it's going to be 15 minutes, right? Because depending on what else is going on in their lives. But I think that to have a set limit on screen time is a potentially problematic way of thinking about it. What we're actually recommending, and I think that the data support, is to flip the paradigm upside down and think of the child's day as an empty glass that is filled up with this many hours of sleep 
which is absolutely critical, particularly during the growing years of adolescence, and is often the first thing that's shortchanged. Um, a sit-down family meal every day, um, activities that they love to do, whether it's going out and playing basketball or soccer or hanging out with friends or um, going on a camping trip, and see and seeing how much time is left at the end of the day for media use, entertainment media use. And this is um, really critical, not just to have them think about this as setting priorities, but it helps them with time management, um, which God knows we could all do better with. What, what really scares me about what's happening with kids and screen use is that it's not just a function of some, it's not just something kids are getting caught up in with toxic effects. I mean, we're seeing adults uh, gravitate toward the technology uh, in self-destructive ways. Uh, and it makes you wonder if there's anything we can do to forestall this kind of dystopian future that we've been talking about. Well, I think what we're seeing now is that we are reaping the results of the law of unintended consequences. In, in building these devices to be as convenient and sexy and fun as they are, um, in developing software for these devices that um, engages us and keeps us engaged, which is sort of a classic of doing business in this realm. How do we, how do we get them to watch our movie or our television show? Um, but this is now all of that essentially on steroids. Um, we are now seeing that it is causing a real change in both individuals and in society. And I often think of what we're doing at the Center on Media and Child Health is following three moving targets. The first being the developing child to adolescent to adult. The second being a constantly evolving technological environment in which that development is occurring. And the third being the transformation in human behavior as both individuals and as a society that has occurred as a result of us having smartphones in our pockets. We don't look at each other in the, in the elevator or the bus anymore. We're busy staring at our phones, even doing completely useless um, exercises like Candy Crush or something of that nature. And so we have changed the way we are as a people, um, and it's changed our relationships and our society. And we need to really study this. And instead of sort of throwing up our hands and say, woe is us, taking control of this and changing our trajectory. I want to challenge something respectfully that you just said. You said that this was the law of unintended consequences, and yet we know uh, that Steve Jobs famously said, quote, we designed the, the buttons on the screen to be so attractive you'd want to lick the screen. And we know from the testimony of the early founders of Facebook that they had in mind this sort of dopamine uh, Pavlovian response where the more likes you get and with Twitter, the more retweets you get, the more you time you want to spend. So these people, motivated by profit, created this world to be specifically addictive, didn't they? 
Absolutely. Um, but I don't, I think what was unintended is the dramatic change in society that would result. I don't think they realized that in their short-term goal for eyeballs, attention, and dollars, um, they recognized exactly what was going to happen to the world. And, and I would add to that that Steve Jobs made buttons that you would want to lick them, but he also didn't let his children have iPads. Michael, I want to end by going back to the beginning, your beginning. <laughs> uh, why did you, how did you get into this in the first place? Um, I was a screenwriter and filmmaker um, and had the great privilege and honor of working with uh, the great Akira Kurosawa in Japan as his assistant director. And when I came back to the U.S., um, I really sort of hit a brick wall because it was like going from Rembrandt studio to a, a Chevy factory. Um, and uh, what really drove my interest was an interest in the human condition, why we are, who we are, how we behave, et cetera. And so the only other thing that interested me was medicine. But once I got into medicine was right about the time when people were getting increasingly concerned about the effects of television watching on obesity or of playing video games on kids' aggression or anxiety. And so I was able to meld my two areas of experience and expertise um, and, and build a, a center that really to this day is the only dedicated place that's really looking at rigorous data um, to show how we are changed in positive as well as in negative ways by the media we use and how we use them. Is Kurosawa still with us? No, he died a few years back. I wonder what he'd make of this dystopian world we're living in now. Well, he had a pretty dystopian view of the world anyway. <laughs> I know um, he did. So yeah. I think he would say, I told you so, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. I always like talking to you. Let's do it again. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown mile of downtown. Joining us now from Westlaco, Texas, CBS News correspondent David Begno, who has been there gathering information. David, the image of that little two-year-old girl in the red shirt crying has become so iconic. People all over the country have been heartsick about her plight. We know that you had the first information on the Border Patrol agent and photographer who took that image. Tell us what you found. So what we first heard from Border Patrol, Paula, was that they felt there was misinformation, that it was being used as a photo was spreading and just going everywhere and literally being used as the one picture to sort of symbolize what was happening here on the border. And so we went to Border Patrol and we said, we want to talk to the agent. And it took nearly five days to secure that interview. There's actually been flash flooding here in this area and the agent had flooding in his home and his car. But before that, they just didn't want him to talk. It was such a hot button issue. The picture gone viral and they just weren't going to have him talk. And it took a while to convince them that the only way for us to tell the audience the context surrounding the photo was to hear from the agent. In fact, Time Magazine used the image on its cover and has now issued a correction because of what you learned. Correct. They did. They issued a correction saying that the picture uh, depicted a girl who likely had been separated and that was not the case. Border Patrol says they did not separate the mother and daughter the entire time they were in the custody of Border Patrol, about 72 hours. And ICE, which now has custody of the mom and daughter, 
says they did not separate them either. The two of them are together, but make no mistake about it, they're in custody. It's not like they're free to go anywhere. That's right. And you were saying this is uh, the second time that this woman will have been charged with trying to illegally enter the country? So ICE says back in 2013, this woman entered the country illegally and was deported. At the time, ICE says she was alone. This time she came with a child. Given that she came with a child, the measures have been taken to keep the two of them together. The difference this time will be she'll likely be charged with a felony of entering the country illegally. The first time you come into the country illegally, it's a misdemeanor. The second time, it's a felony. Now, since the president signed that executive order, you've had a hard time getting any more information about what's happening now to these families. Nobody will talk. One official called me today and said, listen, there's a media blackout and we're not going to talk or say anything and you're not going to get many agencies to say anything until there's a whole of government response. Really can't even tell you what that even means. But the bottom line is 48 hours after the president signed the executive order, it is nearly impossible to get anyone to say what is going to happen. People are quite frankly waiting for the White House to say what they want to do. The agencies seem poised and ready to act, but nobody is answering any questions. Well, we know you'll be there continuing to ask those questions, gathering information for all of us. David Begno in Texas, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thanks. You bet. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. So here we are, 4th of July weekend, which you always think of your barbecues and fireworks and the Boston Pops on the Esplanade. It's going to be great. Let me correct you. 4th of July week this year, right? It's on a Wednesday, so it's two 4th of July weekends. It's become a new American tradition (laughs) to stretch a single holiday into an entire week off. Right. Um, In news, we always start talking about what's the driving scene going to look like? How many drivers on the road? Apparently, almost 47 million drivers will drive more than 50 miles, which is up 5%, a new record according to AAA. And I know, John, you talked to Mary McGuire, who says there are new things out there on the road that have the potential to kill you. Yeah, keep in mind, Mary McGuire is the longtime communications director for the AAA, American Automobile Association of Southern New England. And she's seen it all, Mm. okay? Uh, but she says uh, that uh, it's ne- there's never been more people on the road. Um, there's never been more concern among public safety officials about uh, the dangers of all those people on the road. So buckle your seatbelt and put on your helmet uh, because here's a cautionary tale about what's ahead. It's going to be a long, hot summer. <laughs> Drive with a helmet? Drive with a helmet. Why not? <laughs> Mary, as you anticipate now the real heat of the summer driving season with the the upcoming uh, holiday and what's what I guess is going to amount to a holiday week for a lot of people, uh, when you think of what'll be going on on the roads, traffic, distracted driving, what is it that keeps you up awake at night? Well, we certainly know that levels of both distracted driving, drowsy driving, and drunk driving, the three Ds as we call them, increase during busy holiday weekends. In particular, they are deadly for teenage drivers who are our youngest and most inexperienced group of drivers, and so they are particularly susceptible to drowsy driving, being sleep-deprived, to distracted driving, because texting is a problem with all of us. We all know that we're distracted by our smartphones. 
phones. Um, and so we know that, uh, that incidences of crashes involving teenagers uh, increase, and we also know that incidents of drunk, drowsy, and distracted driving increase for all of us during busy holidays. And that's why we see uh, more police patrols out during these times. And so I would just urge everyone to avoid the three Ds and to make sure that they are really focusing their attention on the roadways and putting safety first. Now, you've been at this for a while, specifically with regard to teen driving. Is the situation getting worse, getting better, about the same as it was, say, a decade ago? Well, unfortunately, we know from research that's been done by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that the number of deaths on our roadways is unfortunately spiking upward. And in fact, uh, we are seeing the most dramatic spike and the most dramatic increase in highway deaths that we have seen in some 50 years in this country in the last two to three years. We know that distraction is a big piece of that. Um, We know that distraction is a factor in probably at least 15 to 17 percent of all fatal crashes, and that may be a conservative estimate. But the fact of the matter is, I think all of us who drive in Massachusetts know that there are many people who cruise down the road with their cell phone right in front of them, reading, uh, texting, not looking at the roadway, looking at their phones. So um, certainly uh, we find this to be an alarming trend at AAA Northeast, and it's a trend that we're working very hard to reverse. So the smartphone is literally killing us. What if you could wave your magic wand and poof, legislation would appear or a change in social attitude or a change in uh, cultural attitude could uh, uh, be materialized on the spot? What would you choose? Well, I do think the social norms have to change. I think we're also wired today that when we get into our cars, we forget that our first responsibility is to our own safety, the safety of our passengers and the safety of everyone else on the roadway. And AAA uh, is working very hard to pass uh, the hands-free cell phone bill, which is before the legislature right now. And we've been working for many years for a stronger primary seatbelt bill in Massachusetts, which I think is critically important because of the fact that right now, Massachusetts is 49th in seatbelt use across the country. And that is embarrassing in such a well-educated state. And it also means that people are simply not using the best tool uh, that they have to protect themselves when we all make the errors in judgment that we all make as drivers. And I include myself in that. So when we're driving distracted uh, or drowsy, for example, our best defense, and especially for our teens, is to wear that seatbelt because that cuts your risk of dying in a crash almost in half. And in fact, in Massachusetts, the numbers tell us that not even three quarters of us are buckling up on a regular basis. Oh, man. You know, we you do interviews like this all the time. We've seen public service announcement campaigns about drunk driving, uh, drug driving, uh, distracted driving. Uh, We see police roadblocks, all sorts of public safety initiatives by the authorities. Uh, What works? What what has a proven track record of uh, at least stemming the tide of this kind of dysfunctional, dangerous behavior? 
You know, it is such a great question. I mean, I think you're on the right track with the social norming. I think people really have to take a long, hard look at what's important to them, uh, put safety first, and really change their behavior. So I think, you know, practical solutions such as, you know, stashing your phone in the trunk or the glove box where you really just can't get to it since you know you're probably going to be tempted. I think those kinds of things work, and if we all could do that, we've certainly seen the real tangible impact of really good, thoughtful laws when we look at the junior operator laws here in Massachusetts that were passed in the 2007-2008 time frame. So 16- and 17-year-olds in Massachusetts cannot use phones at all when they drive. They can only use a phone in an emergency. They can't talk hands-free. They can't uh, drive anyone other than uh, a relative, a sibling for the first six months, so there's a passenger restriction. And they also can't drive from 1230 to 5 a.m. when many crashes occur. And those three things have combined to really decrease the number of teen deaths uh, in the past uh, 10 years here in Massachusetts. So that's a success story where really thoughtful legislation has made a difference. And I hope we can apply something equally thoughtful to distracted driving. Please correct me if I imagine this, but I thought I saw somewhere recently there's talk of new car technology uh, where uh, they will shut off the Bluetooth uh, when you get over a certain speed or some mechanical way of minimizing the use of the phone in the car. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, you know, there are a lot of tools out there. Um, in addition to technology in some cars that will not allow you, for example, to program a, a GPS once you've driven out of your driveway, uh, the iPhone has an app whereby you can set it to a setting that, you know, you simply won't be notified or hear a ping when you're driving, and your phone will send an automatic message saying, I'll call you later, I'm driving now. So you are absolutely right, John, that there are some tremendous technology out there that we can all harness to make our driving safer. And one of the best things you can do as the parent of a young driver is to make sure you're enforcing the junior operator rule that only allows your child to drive with a sibling or family member for the first six months in Massachusetts. And beyond that, for as long as you can, limit the number of fellow teens and friends who are driving with your child. You know, tell them that they're not going to get the use of the car if they're driving more than one friend. That's my recommendation because it makes a huge difference. You can imagine the level of distraction with multiple teens in the car. It really quadruples uh, your risk of crashing when you have three or four kids in a car together. You know, Mary, we began our conversation with a great point by you about people having to focus on what they're doing in the car uh, on job one, which is getting from point A to point B safely, safely for them, safely for other drivers. But, you know, we, you and I have talked about this before, the evolution of the car as not just a mode of transportation, but as an entertainment center. I mean, you can go back to the 50s, maybe even the 40s, and a, a big part of the romance of the open road was flipping on the radio, uh, dropping the top if you've got a convertible, and it was part of the whole great experience of driving in America. But we've gone way, way beyond that now to where the 
The car is a telephone. It's a stereo system. It's Wi-Fi. It's a it's a movie theater. It's everything rolled into one. <laughs> uh, we're not ever getting that back in the jar, are we? Well, you know what? You are absolutely right. The bottom line is that the new cars today are big rolling computers, and there is so much in that dashboard. And one of the things we found out uh, through our AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety Research is that that dashboard can be just another source of distraction. Many of these bells and whistles, voice-activated technology, for example, that were designed and placed in automobiles with the intent of minimizing distraction have now become additional distractions. And let me qualify that. When the technology is working well and I'm driving along and I say, call John Keller, and John Keller picks up the phone and we have a brief conversation, which is legal in Massachusetts, you know, then that's great. But when I say, call John Keller, and Siri says back to me, call John Smith, that's when the driver starts to get frustrated and even more distracted because when the technology in the dashboard is not working correctly or working well, it can become simply another form of distraction. Well, Mary, I was planning on taking my family down the Cape over the 4th, but now after talking to you, I think I'm just going to curl up in bed and pull the covers over my head and pray that uh, somebody, some clown doesn't crash his car into my bedroom. Oh, no. Well, that, that's terrible. We want you to go to the Cape. So forget what I said. Yeah. Well, <laughs> have a great time on the Cape. I'll, I'm going to try. And I hope uh, people <laughs> are listening to all your, your words of warning and uh, abiding by them. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks, John. And uh, happy Fourth of July. Same to you, to you and yours. So, John, before we go on hiatus for the summer, a very interesting article from Curbed Boston, which brings up an, an interesting question. Where are the places to cry in public in the Boston area? And they produced a map. They say, for instance, Cambridge Common. There's a quiet outdoor spot for gentle sobbing. The Fenway Park bleachers. No one will notice your tears in this dense, open, rowdy seating area of America's oldest major league ballpark. And it goes on and on. Franklin Park Zoo, Charles River Esplanade. And it talks about the places where you can go, let it out, and cry in public. I guess have a fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Have a little bit of a nervous breakdown in the middle of the day. What is the criteria here? Um, I mean, what defines a good place to I guess cry that in public? You will have a, a spot to have a big cry. It won't raise eyebrows, and you've got a relatively private little spot where you won't be noticed. Okay. That seems to be their theme. Which well, is I would really add a few to that list. Yes, go uh, ahead. How about? Uh, uh, Inside the state house. <laughs> That's exactly what I knew you, you know, were going to say. Uh, m- many the Massachusetts taxpayers have been known to break into tears at yes. the sights and sounds <laughs> of what's being done to them in there. And how about any given bar room in the city? It's true. Lots I mean, of tea stations listed here. Park, Park Street Station. Well, that's Station, a good reason to cry. Edward Everett yeah. Square, right, on the T, on the orange line. But, I mean, what about the old saying, you know, crying in your beer? I know, you yes. You have to have a oh, beer yeah. to cry in if you're going to cry in there it. There have to be some bar. Uh, I mean, Amrines would be perfect, right, for, for a good cry. I'll add one. Uh, it has here Park Street Station, which I have cried in Park Street Station. I will tell you that. I've ha- I have a memory. First job out of college, particularly hideous day. I had a good cry in Park Street Station on the way home one night, uh, but also were you, were you comforted by a bomb? Uh, oh yeah, 
Of course, no one even stopped to notice. They were just flooding by. I was just one of probably a thousand postgraduate women that day to be seen crying as she ran to her train. But around the corner, happy tears in the Boston Public Garden where I got engaged. So there were a few tears, tears of there joy. of joy when Bill popped the question. So wow. I guess there can be happy spots too. Wow. But every once in a while, I guess, I, I, people I, in Boston just need a little spot to go. That's a nice story, but I think I'm about to go into diabetic shock. <laughs> <laughs> John, have you seen anyone cry at the State House? Um, you ever seen open weeping? I've seen open weeping. A lot of screaming uh, and wailing. Yeah. Actual crying. Yeah, once or twice, I guess. Sure. sure. Yeah, people tear up. You know, and why do couples always fight? They're always right outside a bar. That's definitely a good fighting and crying spot. BU Beach. But on like a bridge. Aren't there always couples fighting on bridges? Yeah, bridges. The BU yeah, Beach, BU you know, bridge. that, that yep, sloping BU lawn breach. alongside yep, Star Absolutely. Yeah, I actually saw a couple apparently breaking up. This is not mm. in Boston now. But, you know, uh, if you, as you're driving into Provincetown on Route 6, oh, those yes. beautiful dunes. Oh, boy. Just before you enter the the town limits, the 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 gorgeous sand. It used to be able to walk up there. They right. don't let you do it anymore. Right. I don't think. Mm. But uh, my wife and I were taking a, a stroll down there, sure. and we saw up on one of the dunes. This couple, <laughs> she was crying. He looked very upset. They were breaking up. He was up on one dune looking one way. She was up on the other dune looking the other way. That's the telltale sign. My wife and I at that point decided to go get a beer. <laughs> I think you walked into an Antonioni movie. Yeah, it sort of sounds like it, yeah. doesn't it? I yeah. was also at an outdoor bar in Cape Cod where the telltale <laughs> sign is the couple are on the stools next to each other but facing in opposite directions and they never spoke. And finally, the woman got up and stormed out. He rolled his eyes, paid the bill, and followed her out. <laughs> so. I've got an idea for a follow-up listicle. Okay. Best places to whine. Not oh. W-I-N-E, W-H-I-N-E. And the State House would be number one. Well, I would think that the entire city, given what a bunch of whiners we can be. About the street. weather, about how we were robbed by the umpire, uh, and so on and At so on. At every college and university. Oh, no, the, the capitals of yeah. whining, yeah. So check it out. Where to cry in public in the Boston area, mapped. Thanks, Curbed. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. The universe. So, John, this was episode 16. We wow. have under our belt. Pretty good for but, the launch of Studio BZ. Well, I mean, that's, I guess, ultimately for the listeners to judge. But I've got, I've heard some great feedback yep. so far. It's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And you can help us after we come back from our, our July break here. Yeah, we're going to take a hiatus for the month yep. of July while people are on vacations. Be back in August with new guests, new ideas. And we want to hear from you. Go back and listen to our past episodes and give us some suggestions. I liked the one on on why sports fans around the country hate us. Yes. With Danny Roach. That was fantastic. Uh, And got some good feedback on that out in the street, as a matter Mm -hmm. of fact. That was really good. I also feel like when we have Dr. Malika Marshall here, she gives us this real skinny on what we're reading about medicine in news, and you can kind of trust that she's really going to give it to us straight. And you were off this week, Paula, but when Liam and I were doing it one week, and he started talking about how he proposed to his wife. Oh, there wasn't a dry eye in the house there. (laughs) By the way, I should give his Twitter handle, at Liam WBZ, 
which he would love so, to you, know. So, you know, go to cbsboston.com. You'll find the yes. complete catalog of our podcasts there. Mm-hmm. As Paula said, go to any place where you download podcasts. And uh, feedback. We, yes. we want to make this better and more fun for everyone. I forgot my absolute favorite, Bill Shields, who's been here for 38 years, talking about why, as a Texan, he still loves covering winter storms. So if there's somebody here within the WBZ family that you'd like to hear from or you'd like to ask a few questions of, feel free. Did we have to bleep anything out of that Shields interview? I wasn't here for that. I think he was on particularly good behavior that day. He was wow. very well behaved. He was very wow. well behaved. I, I, I need to get a few beers in him or something. Well, we, we that gotta, wouldn't be a problem. Well, you got to ship that <laughs> podcast to the Smithsonian <laughs> then because Bill Shields on his best behavior, that's that's unique. You wouldn't have to twist his arm. No, I'm, I'm going to get him in here on a Friday night. Yep. And, uh, let him loose. Let him loose. Ask him about his entire career. Well, well, there is uh, that show, Drunk History. <laughs> yes, where people just, right. Yes, I suppose we could history. give that a try one night. I don't know. We might be asked to leave. If we Tipsy did that. Studio BZ. <laughs> what do you think? Only with Bill Shields. Only, Only Bill. Good deal. Good idea, John. We'll have a great month of July, John and Jonathan. And may I say, God bless America, first yes, of all, God bless and America. may we say for the final time before we see you in August, we'll, we'll be seeing you. you. Is that really how you want to go out for the summer? (laughs) Shut up, will you? Just shut the hell up. (laughs) You got a month to come up with something new. All right, you're right. We're working on it. We're working on it.